We're going to need a little bit of review in order to understand what's going on in Isaiah chapter 8. But if you want to find your way to chapter 8 in your pew Bible, it is on page 572. And we will be looking at it in its fullness. Isaiah chapter 8 is part of a section that runs from Isaiah 7 through Isaiah chapter 12. And we're going way back here. We've been mar marching our way through chapters 1 through 12. When we get to chapter 12 on Epiphany Sunday, we'll be done. We're going to move on to something else. But that whole first package, Isaiah 1 through 12, is ultimately a prophecy about Emmanuel. That is a prophecy about Jesus of Nazareth being born to Mary, as we just heard read about the angel Gabriel, the Magnificat, all this a few moments ago. But it's stuck in the middle of a history. That history is the fact that Emmanuel is also Israel, meaning the people whom God has chosen to be with them through history. And at the time that this is happening, even Israel isn't really Israel, but has been divided into two different countries, the North and the South. The North has the name Israel, but they don't have the promises anymore, not the same way. The south, now called Judah, is where the throne of David is. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where all the promises are. But the throne of Judah is sat upon by a wicked man named Ahaz, who would prefer to worship Baal than to worship Jesus, than to worship his God. And so... God has let his strength and his fortifications begin to fall apart. And this happens by a conspiracy. And this conspiracy is between Pekah, the king of northern Israel, and Rezin, the king of Syria. You might just think of Damascus, the city of Damascus. It's kind of where modern-day Syria is, actually. Um, it was a major country in that time. It wasn't really an empire. But these two countries, Israel and Syria, they are conspiring to get rid of Ahaz and put someone else on his throne. And Isaiah in chapter 7 then is sent out to meet Ahaz and to tell him, you don't need to worry about this. It's not going to happen. Not because of you. I mean, you're obviously worshiping idols. You, you deserve to be cast down from your throne. But because they think they can get rid of the throne of David, God, who promised the throne of David will be established forever, he's going to stop them. And the way he's going to stop them is he's going to bring against them another country, which is even further north. And this one is an empire. This one's big and mean and nasty. It gets a little confusing because we're talking about Syria already, and this other country is called Assyria. They really don't have anything to do with each other in terms of their name, but they sound the same, right? But Assyria, or Asher, as it was anciently called, Asher is a nasty, mean, barbaric people with lots of power, lots of armies, and they're going to come down, and they're going to take away the king of Damascus, and they're going to sweep away the king of northern Israel, and this will protect Judah and Jerusalem, except for one thing, which is that because Ahaz has chosen to trust in his idols and in his own offerings to the king of Assyria, God's going to let Assyria keep on coming. 
They're going to come all the way down through Judah, all the way up to the very gates of Jerusalem. They're going to take away people as slaves. They're going to conquer cities. They're going to take away spoil and booty, if we can talk about it that way. And it isn't until they get to the gates of Jerusalem that the king will repent and call out to the God of Israel and find salvation. By the time that happens, Ahaz is already dead. And it's his son, Hezekiah, who probably is the first fulfillment of Emmanuel, who goes into the temple and, and prays. That story is in chapters 37 through 39. And we're not going to go all the way into that story today. But that's, that's our context here. Right? And chapter 8 is still part of Isaiah saying to Ahaz, the thing you're trusting to save you, Assyria, not really going to save you. God will save you, but since you don't trust him, he's going to let you hurt a lot first. He's going to send a lot of pain on you first. He's going to bring judgment down on you first. And as a result of this judgment, the remnant, that is those who are not destroyed, will be converted. Maybe you remember from last week in chapter 7, the remnant will be converted is the name of Isaiah's first son. And he's standing with Isaiah as he talks to Israel. We're going to see today not only that son, but his second son. Their names are both prophecies of what will take place. The remnant will be converted and uh, Mahar Shalahashbahaz. We'll get there in a moment, uh, what his name means. Now, this means, though, I got to correct something I said last week. I was wrong. I said last week that one of Isaiah's sons was not my people, and that he was named not my people so that God could say to not my people, you're my people now. Yeah? That does happen in the Bible, but not to Isaiah. Yeah, that's, that's Hosea's son. So if you took notes on that one last week, scratch that one off. Pastor Fisk proved his errors, right? I, I can error too. Um, and one of you caught me on it, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, learning the lore of the Bible well enough that your pastor can't lie to you is one of the major goals I have as your pastor. Yeah? Not that I want to lie to you, but you know, catching me in it, that's good. All right, so we're going to continue on, though, in this Warning that Judah is going to have Assyria attack them. This will pick up in chapter 8, verse 1, top of the right column on page eight, 572 in your pew Bible. Of course, if you have your own Bible, that's even better. Yeah. Uh, it says, Then the Lord said to me, that's you know Jesus saying to Isaiah, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Marhar Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get a reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. Now, this is all kind of set up, but the long and short here is that he's going to create a table with this phrase, Mahar Shalahashbaz, on it. And he's going to make two very public figures, right? Uh, the, the high priest, it says, right? Uh, and then. Uh, I think Zechariah, the son of Jeberechiah, works for the king. I can't quite remember. But he's going to get these two public figures to look at this table with this phrase written on it so that later, when it comes to pass, they'll have to say, yep, Isaiah said that was going to happen. Right? He's setting up a witness in the future. Now, as we're going to see in a moment, this witness will also be his next born son. It all kind of gets tied together, but it starts off with inscribing the name of his next born son into this table. 
What's that name? I mean, it's really something. Mahar Shalahashbaz. Imagine trying to say that one quickly when you need him to come. Yeah, uh, <laughs> barely get the thing out. Uh, what does it mean? It means hasten the spoil, speed the booty is how they usually translate it, just because we don't have a second better word for spoil. The loot, the money. Hasten the spoil, speed the loot. The idea is that everything you got is going to be taken away pretty soon. All the stuff you're trusting in is about to disappear. It's not going to wait very long. The destruction is coming. That, that's the name of his, his, his son. I mean, imagine having to be called that all the time. It's uh, not probably the most fun thing I can imagine. Verse 3 talks about now him being born. And I went to the prophetess, you know, the prophet's wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahar Shalahashbaz, right? Hasten the spoils, speed the loot. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Right? So how long does it take for a child to know how to say my father and my mother? And not very long, a couple years maximum, right? And so the point is that within a year, year and a half, Damascus, that's the capital of Syria, right? Samaria, that's the capital of Israel, these two countries that are threatening Judah, before a year and a half to two years, they're going to be defeated. And all of what they've put their trust in is going to be taken away by this king of Assyria. This sounds like good news. This is good for Judah. That means their enemies are going to be stopped. But, verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. It will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. All right. It helps to know that the, uh, the stream of Shiloh, the waters of Shiloh, was both a, a trickle, a stream, and a pool that fed Jerusalem. Right? So if you're living in the city of Jerusalem, one of the places you're going to get your water is from the pool of Shiloh. Yeah. So when he says that they have refused the waters of Shiloh, what it means is that the people of Jerusalem have not been content with what God gave them. They're not happy with what is ultimately a very good thing. He calls it gentle. Yeah? And so here in this, the house of David, as those who trust in Jesus, here David himself, right? they've rejected the God of Israel. And as a result of their not being happy with the water from the rock that the God of Israel gives them, he's bringing water from somewhere else. And he calls it the river. This is the Euphrates. Now, you might know the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, these great ancient rivers that the Fertile Crescent civilization was majorly built up around. Of course, the Nile River in Egypt is the rest of that and all this. But, but the Euphrates is the great river. And this river, which he calls the king of Assyria, so he's talking about Nineveh, Assyria, this empire that's going to conquer these two nations above him, it's going to overflow its banks. 
And I asked at the early service, you know, uh, how far does the Rock River go when it overflows its banks? And I had some heads nodding that goes quite a way. And I thought, well, I wonder if it's ever gotten to Cherry Valley. Uh, I wonder if it's ever gotten to Pecatonica, just washed out this entire area, right? That's what I want you to imagine, a flood so great that the river chases away everything that would be near it. And that's what the Euphrates is going to do. Only it's not the Euphrates, it's the armies of Assyria. And they're going to overflow the banks, the, the border of Assyria. They're going to crush through Syria and Israel. They're going to come all the way down to Jerusalem in Judea. It says up to the neck, right? Verse 8, it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. Yeah, almost drowning you. Almost drowning you. And its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O God who is with you. That's what Emmanuel means, right? God who is with you. Think Hezekiah. Uh, think Jesus too. And the fulfillment of all of this ultimately isn't about a little nation in the ancient Middle East. The whole thing is about the devil trying to take away the earth and the, and the universe from Jesus. And how God really allowed the rebellion of Adam to be punished by the devil's tyranny over all of us. That he's captured us like a strong man, bound us up as his slaves. And Jesus enters into this midst so that that wrath might come all the way up to his own neck. In fact, he did die. But death could not contain him, right? And so his head, which is the head of Godhead, yeah, rose again from the dead so that mankind could be set free from the tyranny of the devil. See that connection here. All of this is a foreshadow. All of it's a small picture of the bigger picture, yeah? But in that case, then, what happens is Judah is going to be nearly entirely destroyed by this king of Assyria. Now, verses 9 and 10, they're set apart there like a little bit of poetry. Can you see that? Uh, he says, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Now, that whole thing reads like pretty serious judgment, but the end of it is hope for you. Okay, so in everything I'm going to say next, you can hear this one of two ways, right? You can hear this as, this is bad for me, or you can hear this as, this is good for me. And because you are the remnants, because you are Christianity, because you do believe in Jesus' resurrection, I want you to hear this is good for you, all right? It's good for you that God says, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Now, now in its context, this is Damascus, this is Samaria, this is even Assyria. It's saying that all the efforts of all you warring peoples trying to grab power for yourselves is just going to break you. And if you want to come and conquer Jerusalem, that is, if you want to cast aside Jesus Christ from his throne, you can strap on your armor, but you're just going to be shattered. You can set yourself against God to take war against him and make yourself king, but you're just going to fail. You can take counsel all you want, make the plans you want to have the world be the way you want. If God doesn't want it that way, it's not going to happen. You can speak a word. I know this will be. Well, that's fine. You think what you want. But God will be the one who proves himself true. 
And so if you're setting your plans against the church of Jesus Christ, that is against the word which has been delivered to us once and for all in the Holy Scriptures, well, then your word will not stand. But those who are with that word have God with them. That's you, right? And so you are going to stand. Now, I want to try to put this uh, into our context here a little bit. And it's always risky when I do this, you know, when I talk about what's going on in the world. Um, No matter what you listen to, I know you listen to something. You turn on that machine and it talks to you. You have to pick. And even if you think, man, I don't really trust them. They're mostly telling lies. They're still talking to you with those lies and, and they're pushing you. They're moving you. They're trying to get you to fear what they fear, to want what they want, and, and especially to buy what they're selling to you. But no matter what story you're listening to right now, you see lots of individuals saying, the answer is this. We need to do that. If only there were more of this. And what I want you to see in this text, 9 and 10, we've got more coming in a minute, but in 9 and 10, is that God says, I don't care what you plan. I don't care what you think you're going to do to stop it. If I've decreed that you're going to be in a collapsing economy or in a war that defeats you, then there's nothing you can do about it. You go ahead, put your armor on. Try, have fun. You go ahead, say you're going to stand. See what happens. So for you, Christian, right now, what this means is not that we should tear our hair out about anything, but that we should know that if God wants our country to go through hard times, guess who put us in those hard times? It was God. And so to try to set ourselves up, especially our hearts, as if we need to make this not happen somehow, or we need to listen to those who are going to stop it from happening, you walk in a little bit of a dangerous place. You might find yourself fighting God. And you don't want to be in that place where you're fighting God. Yeah. Um, So let's continue with this thought. It's going to come back here in a second. Verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. What is that? Saying, is what he says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. Now, again, I mean, I guess I can call it names if I call them both out. It doesn't matter if it's CNN or Fox News or somewhere in between. Everybody says, I'm on this side and that side, they're conspiracy people. They got a conspiracy going on. They got secret things going on that they're doing to destroy us. You say on the other side, those guys over there, they got a conspiracy going on. They got secret things they're doing to destroy us. Do not walk in the way of this people. You know what they're saying? They're saying, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. On the other side, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. The word comes to Isaiah says, don't be afraid. I mean, it doesn't mean there's no conspiracy. There's actually a conspiracy going on in this text. Israel and Syria are conspiring to destroy Judah. It's actually happening. But he comes to Isaiah and says, so what? Who do you think's in charge? Ah, Look at the next verse. But the Lord of hosts, again, that's Jesus. Jesus of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Ah. The fear of God is a a challenging topic. Because I think most of us, we don't want to fear God. 
We don't want to think that that's a good thing, but I want to convince you it's a good thing to be afraid of God. Because knowing how big and strong and mighty and powerful and terrifying God actually is, and then knowing he stands behind you on your side, that's a pretty empowering idea. If you don't fear God, what good is he going to do you? Why would you want him on your side? You know, if you're, if you're going to go to battle with somebody and the guy next to you, you're kind of like not so worried about, I mean, he's kind of not that good. You don't want him in battle with you. Huh? But you have the one true God who indeed not only has the power to kill the body, he has the power to cast body and soul into hell. And so Jesus says, fear him. And what happens next? Verse 14, he will become a sanctuary. So to have a fear of God is to have confidence in God. It's to know who he really is, what he really says, what he plans to do, and how nobody anywhere is ever going to stop his purposes from coming to pass. Now, just because God is your sanctuary does not mean that everyone else is going to agree with you. That's the rest of the verse. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Right, so, so Isaiah is preaching this, and there are people who believe it, and for them, the remnant, God is their sanctuary, who will preserve them from death in the prayers of Hezekiah and that entire story that takes place. At the same time, these very same words become a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. The unbeliever doesn't like these words. And to go directly to our times, I'll tell you, the biggest thing they got going right now, the unbelievers, is that they've shamed us into being quiet whenever they don't like what we say. You notice that how tentative you are about what you believe, how you always kind of got to try to say it in a way that doesn't make them angry. You know what that means? That means you're being bullied. That's what that means. Huh? Expect it. Expect the devil and those who listen to his lies to bully you because it's the only game they got. And again, it is a big lie. It can't actually win. Jesus has told you ahead of time, that he will be a scandal to the world. If they hated him, why would they like you? So know that when you have the sanctuary, which is the body and blood of Jesus Christ, which binds you into his everlasting reality, that you're going to be the stench of death to those who are around you. And that this offense that you give is the offense that we need to give. I want you to hear the pun there. There's a pun. Huh? I don't know. Are you watching World Cup? Do you like the sports? What sport do you like? doesn't matter to me. In every sport you play, there's two things. There's defense and there's offense. You imagine going on offense and the defender goes, Oh, you're mean. Yeah? Oh, stop it. That's not nice. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. Yeah? Well, you would never do that. And yet that's exactly where the Christian church has found itself right now. We're worried about being on offense. Now we wonder why no one believes what we believe anymore. We don't even believe it enough ourselves to want to want to score, if you can just complete the analogy there, right? So know that your fear of God will be offense. That's good, even though some will stumble upon it, yeah? Verse 15, many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And this, again, very specifically is about Judah 
and how many people will die, really die, before the armies of Assyria are turned back. And you have to hear this as it's because they did not, one, flee to Jerusalem, two, flee to the temple in Jerusalem, three, flee to the God of the temple in Jerusalem. So God keeps sending the armies until the people start to pray. Now, what, what do we take from that here? What did Paul say in Philippians a few moments ago? Right? In every anxiety, what do you have? The moment they say, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid, what do you have? You have a reminder to pray. To recognize that the power that you have, the power of prophecy, uh, the power of supernatural reality, is to stand in the midst of everyone else losing their head. And look at Jesus and say, Jesus, please take care of this. There's lots of ways you can do that. I recommended last night to the congregation, you can take home that Luke text about the Magnificat and you can just pray it every day this week leading up to Christmas. That's a good start. Want to go a little deeper? If you haven't picked up a Sons of Solomon, Daughters of Wisdom booklet, learn how to pray the Psalms. It'll change your world, let me tell you. The point being, again, that you have the Almighty God's ear. He's listening. And if all you can think to ask for is more cotton candy, then you're not really thinking much. Especially in the midst of all the rest of it that's going on right now. So let let me get very specific for a moment. The economy is in a little rough shape, right? And the Federal Reserve just bumped it up another 0.5 interest points. Have you heard about that? They said uh, last week that every family in America is costing them $400 a month more to live right now than exactly what they were doing last year at this exact same time. And on an annual basis, that number is going up at the rate of 7 to 8%. The current administration is making a big deal. It's down to 7% now. Oh, really? Down to 7%? I'm only losing $0.07 cents on every dollar this year? Wow. Now, the Federal Reserve wants it to get down to 2%. That's where they think they can manage it. Now, the whole monetary game, that's a different thing. But to get it down to 2%, they're raising these things they call interest rates, which means every loan anyone goes out to take right now is going up, 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 up. So the same house that you have been able to buy last year for a mortgage of $2,000 is around $3,000 a month as a mortgage just because of those interest rates. How is this going to affect food next year? How is this going to affect energy prices this winter? I mean, it's not looking good. So what are you going to do? Going to shake at the knees? Going to worry that you can't have everything you used to have? Are you going to remember that whatever is happening to this country, Jesus is in complete charge of it. And if anything bad is happening, he wants the remnant to be like, oh man, we should remember God instead of worry about our idols all the time. We should turn back to Jesus and pray to him knowing that he hears what we say. And so if you truly want to survive whatever collapse, economy, blah, blah is coming, the answer isn't to go get good counsel and to put on your armor. The answer is to remember that you have a God who loves you, loves you like a child, as a son, has engraved you in the palms of his hand. If he died for you, how much more will he not also plan to give you all things? And if all things means wisdom first, then maybe it means teaching you that sojourning through this veil of tears isn't about hoarding up as much enjoyment as you can. Maybe you don't need all that you got. Maybe you're stronger than you think you are. Maybe with a little bit less, 
you'd be a little bit happier. I know those are really crazy ideas for Americans, but probably true, actually. All right, let's get back to the text here. Verse 16. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. That means get back to the scriptures, people. Are you worried about it? Are you concerned about it? Get back to the Bible. Know what it says. Believe it. Make church about what the Bible says. hundred years ago, there were more churches in this country you could shake a stick at. They're all full. What happened? I think a lot of things happened. I think there's a lot of things we could point our fingers at. But I'll tell you, at the center of it all, guess what happened? We lost what the Bible says. All of us. Whole groups of us. You know, we Lutherans, we got our doctrine. It's all right in order. Yeah, but how many of us are reading the Bible? How many of us are? Now, I know St. Paul, I've been, I've been beating this horse here for a while, so maybe you are. Good. But just know that all these other uh, churches you're driving by, they're not. A few of them might be. Huh? Well, then they're heeding the call. Back to the testimony. Know what it says. Know what it means. Call upon him. Bind up the testimony. Verse 17, I will wait for Jesus. I love that one. You can highlight that one, man. I will wait for the Lord. I will wait for Jesus. Instead of girding up my armor, instead of making all these plans, I will trust that Jesus has a plan. Now, this doesn't mean don't go do what you got to do. You got to go to work tomorrow. If you got money in a bank and there's a run on the bank, you got to get your money out of the bank. So deal with what you got to deal with, but don't do it as if you can stop God. Do it knowing that God is in charge and that ultimately waiting on him is going to be salvation. He's the God who saves. Right now, though, uh, verse 17, I will wait for Jesus, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. Hiding his face from the house of Jacob. You know what that means? God's turned his back on his church at this time, Isaiah's time. <coughs> Excuse me. God's turned his back on his church. So what do you think is happening right now in America with church closures left and right and many churches flying rainbow flags? What do you think's happened? God turned his back on his church. Why are the pews half empty? God's turned his back on his church. What should we do? Wait for Jesus. Get back to the testimony. Get back to the text, right? He's turned his face from Jacob and I will hope in him. So what if it's getting bad out there? So what if it doesn't look good? So what if we have no hope in ourselves? That's the point. Hope in him. Behold, he says, verse 18, I... And the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So he's calling to mind, I will hope in him, remember the names of my kids. First kid, the remnant shall be converted. Second kid, speed the spoil, hasten the loot. There's going to be a destruction. Everything's going to get looted. But the remnant, those who realize they need a God, are going to have the God of salvation standing right in front of them. And then notice how he said, not just his sons, but I and my sons. What's his name? Isaiah. Isaiah, like the name Jesus, Joshua, it means God saves. The remnant will be converted. The booty is going to get taken away, but God is going to save. That's the message of the whole book there in a nutshell. Verse 19. And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should other people inquire of their God? Now, I, we don't have a whole lot of necromancers around these days, although 
I think we have more than you would you would think. We definitely have plenty of mediums, uh, this witchcraft, new ageism, astrology, uh, Reiki. I did. I, I got down uh, just this past Friday to uh, to Oregon, uh, south of here, to go to Badash Cigar with a, a friend of mine. It's always a nice treat when I get down there. And every time I go down there, though, on the it's the west side of the river. You're going along, and there's this little house sitting there. Looks real nice, real taken care of, and it basically says, "Come in for your readings." She's making money. Whoever she probably is, she. She's making money there. This this medium. This necromancer. What's necromancer mean? It means someone who speaks to the dead. A medium is someone who's going to see behind the veil that we live in. Notice how he mocks them with the phrase, they chirp and they mutter. They don't know what they're really talking about. Shouldn't the people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? That's a really interesting idea. So, oh, I lost my husband. I'm going to go into this fortune teller. And she's going to get my husband to talk to me. What makes you think your dead husband has any good advice? He's dead. How, he even, how do you think he even knows what's going on? You think he's just floating around watching? What kind of power do you ascribe to this guy? Why would you ask a dead guy to tell you how to live? Shouldn't you ask the living God to tell you how to live? That's the idea here. Yeah. Now, with that said, I think it's important that we recognize it's not just about going into the fortune teller. There are all sorts of promises being told to us these days about do this, do that, chase this, chase that, and it'll make your life better. There's all sorts of stories being told about how to be healthy, how to be wealthy, how to be wise. And really, why do you listen to all this chirping and muttering that they're doing? Why do you give your ear to liars? I got this piece here from a book that had nothing to do with Christianity, but it's a good piece. It said, don't listen to anybody you can't hold accountable for lying to you. Think that through. How much of what you hear every week, you can't hold them accountable? Why are you giving them your time? You think they're working for your good? Verse 20, to the teaching, to the testimony. Back to the Bible. If they will not speak according to this word, the Bible, it is because they have no dawn, no sunshine, no light. They're going to live in everlasting night. It'll always be winter and never Christmas, that kind of thing. Yeah. So again, do you want the dawn from on high to break upon you? Well, that's why you come to St. Paul Lutheran Church, I hope. It's because we devote our lives to the teaching of the apostles, the reading of scripture, and the breaking of bread and the sacrament. Do you want that to be true for your family? Well, then ask Jesus for that. Wouldn't it be nice if there were more people here with us? Well, then ask Jesus for that. Wouldn't it be great if every church everywhere just did that? Well, then ask Jesus for that. When was the last time you prayed for the churches you passed by that you don't know what's going on there? Wouldn't that be something to do, driving across Rockford every day? Oh, that church. Hope there's Christians there. Teach them the Bible, Jesus. Or again, St. Paul, dear Jesus, will you establish another generation at St. Paul? Will you bring us infants to be baptized, to raise them in the faith, to commune at your altar? Will you have young men and young women believe in the value of marriage and family as the future of a people? Will you send those of us who are aged to our rest in peace, 
dying good deaths in the faith, confident of what we believe and what we're leaving behind, to the testimony, to the teaching. Verse 21. They, now it kind of shifts here. This is Assyria, right? This is the, the armies. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contentiously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. I'm sorry, that's the people of Judah, not Assyria. And that's the people who don't believe. Those are the people who have no dawn. Notice what they blame. They blame God. What should they blame? Themselves. That's the beauty of confession absolution, yes? Did you miss it this week? We did it. I know it kind of comes and goes pretty fast there at the start. You come in and what's the first thing you do as a Christian in this church? You blame yourself. It's a beautiful thing, really. You take ownership for where you are. And then you ask Jesus to fix it. Yeah. And the first thing he says is, I forgive you. You're like, yeah, but I need to walk again. He's like, well, okay, I forgive you. <laughs> yeah, the rest of it will come when you need it. Yeah. Verse 22, they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Again, words of judgment. They're pretty intense. It's not very Christmassy. Yeah. But next week for Christmas, we're into chapter nine which gets a little Christmassy. So, so you got to kind of pull back and hold on for that one. Right? Remember Mary's Magnificat that we heard today. It is. It's about the casting down of thrones. That no throne shall stand when it sets itself against Jesus. Yeah? And before we close here, I want to give you one more thing. I want to make a connection. Would you look back to chapter 8, verse 12 again? should be right there on the page in front of you. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. All right? Hold that thought. And would you turn back a few pages to Proverbs 16, 32. This is on page 540. Proverbs 16, 32. Do not fear what they fear, nor dread what they dread. Yeah? Proverbs 16.32, page 540, says this. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit better than he who takes a city. Do not fear what they fear, nor dread what they dread. To rule your spirit is the real war. It's the real economy. It's the real civilization. It's the real called out church. To be a people set apart who have self-control. So that whatever else the devil yammering out there wants to shout about, it doesn't move you. Because the reign of God, the wisdom of God is in you. The Holy Spirit, who is God, by these words of everlasting power, against which not a single jot or tittle will ever be taken away, this Holy Spirit is inside of you to regenerate your mind, to give you clear sight, and again, to make it so that while everyone else is cowering on the ground, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, you can stand up and say, you know what, Jesus is coming back. He's got my hand all the way through this. He's not going to leave me nor forsake me. Hallelujah. He is risen. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. Amen.